This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. The idea of the water burial I find very spooky. She has rather become the lady of our lake. It had been more than a month since Edward Ruloff beat his wife to death with a marble pestle. He had propped up Harriet's body to examine the wound. And he told Hamilton Freeman, I tried to bring her back to life. I administered every restorative I had at hand, dressed the wound carefully, and did all I could to restore her. He drugged his daughter to stop her crying. He emptied the trunk into Cayuga Lake before sunrise. The afternoon of August 2nd, 1845, Harriet's older brothers, Ephraim and William Scott, were sitting inside Hale's store in Ithaca. It was a hot and sticky day. Sweat beads dripped down their temples. They hadn't seen their younger sister or her two-month-old baby for six weeks. That was just too long to have no contact. And Edward had gone missing, too. He was last seen at William's house the day after he returned from Cayuga Lake. What was going on? Craig Scott says the family asked a neighbor to go inside Ruloff's house. Somebody actually went up there and checked. And they said, no, she hasn't been here. We haven't seen anything ever. haven't heard from her. The brothers were convinced that something terrible had happened. So they decided to go see it for themselves. That same day, they traveled to Lansing, less than five miles away. And they brought along a group of about 50 men, including a sheriff. That seems a little bit like overkill to me, but that's how concerned they were about their sister and niece. They searched Harriet's home. No blood and no evidence of a struggle. But there were also no signs that Harriet had packed for a journey. There were still piles of dirty clothes on the floor, diapers on the counter and dishes in the sink. The Scuts were deeply worried about their disappearance. Rumors quickly spread across the county, and many feared the worst. Villagers whispered that perhaps Edward Ruloff, the charming intellectual, was actually a killer. William and Ephraim returned to Ithaca that afternoon with no answers. And as they sat in the store, they discussed their search of Edward's house. Is he really wicked? Suddenly, Edward appeared at the door. The brothers might finally get an explanation, so they were elated to see him. At first, How are you, doctor? they asked. Where have you been? Where is your wife? Edward told them that Harriet and Priscilla were between the lakes near Geneva. Where in Geneva? the brothers asked. Edward panicked. He quickly revised the tale he told Ephraim and William. No, they're not in Geneva, actually Pennsylvania. Wait, wait, they're in Ohio. Harriet's elderly mother, Hannah, grew uneasy and suspicious. He's lying, she whispered to her sons. Edward really disliked Hannah. Her command over her two sons seemed to intimidate him. Edward said, 
When I was alone with the old lady, I was about to tell her all about it. But before I had recovered enough courage to do so, she commenced to scold me and talk hard to me. This might sound unbelievable, but Ephraim and Williams still weren't convinced that he was lying. So the brothers came up with an interesting plan. They ordered Edward to write Harriet a letter and mail it to Ohio. Edward would remain with them in Ithaca until she wrote him back. That would confirm that their sister and niece were safe, and it would exonerate their brother-in-law. The family's suspicion was at a tipping point, and they needed some kind of evidence, any kind of evidence. Edward appeared shocked and then hurt. He agreed and penned a note. He wanted to put an end to this, too. Edward smiled and asked Jane for directions to the postmaster. He wanted to deliver it personally. Once again, the Scuts trusted him far too much. Within minutes, Edward Ruloff vanished for a second time. Craig Scutt says that when William and Ephraim finally realized he wasn't returning, they felt sickened. He killed them. You know, they came to the conclusion that he must have killed them. So this was kind of an oh my God moment, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it was awful that they lost Harriet, but then to come to the conclusion that they lost other family members to his hand probably made her brothers even more determined to bring him around, bring him to justice. The Scott brothers began to make a plan. William secured a warrant from a local magistrate, paperwork that would allow them to arrest Edward Ruloff themselves and return him to Ithaca in shackles they would chase him down no matter where he went. The plan seemed impossible. How would they ever find him when he could be literally anywhere? But the brothers were committed, and they knew that if they didn't try, Edward Ruloff would be gone forever. And so would Harriet and Priscilla. They clung to the desperate hope that their sister and niece might still be alive. In those days, a suspect could simply hop on a train and travel almost anywhere. There was no way to track him down or even prove his real identity. Historian H.W. Brands told me about the challenges facing lawmen pursuing a criminal in the 1800s. You could very easily just drop out of sight for a while. There's no systematized method of identification. It was difficult to communicate over distance. It's easy to ignore a letter. Um, There were no telephones yet. Photography is not at all common. And so if somebody is on the run from the law, almost nobody has a picture of this person. And so there might be a written description, but if you shave your beard and you cut your hair, then you can pass yourself off as somebody else. Nevertheless, Ephraim hired a private horse-drawn carriage to take him to the train station in Geneva, about 50 miles north of Ithaca. Edward had mentioned that Harriet and Priscilla might be there. But when he arrived, his brother-in-law wasn't there. Ephraim rode the train another 50 miles to Rochester, and there, in what seemed like divine intervention, Ephraim spotted him standing in the depot entrance. Edward panicked and tried to run, but Ephraim snatched him by the collar and dragged him to another car. They're in Ohio, Edward pleaded. I'll take you to them. Ephraim glared at Edward, but then perhaps out of fear and hope, 
or maybe just desperation to find his sister and his niece, he made another poor decision. He agreed to travel west with a killer. The men boarded a train together and soon arrived in Buffalo. They planned to take a steamer on Lake Erie that would eventually lead them to Ohio. They spent the night on board the boat. Edward showed Ephraim his swollen and blistered feet. He had been walking quite a long way from Ithaca to the train station. His brother-in-law felt a bit of empathy, but no trust. Edward slept as Ephraim stood outside his door all night, keeping watch. The next day, Edward stumbled alongside Ephraim as they waded through a large crowd boarding the steamer. He would not stop complaining about his feet. But Ephraim just stopped listening. He dragged him along by his collar. The gangplank was crowded with people, desperate to find a spot on the ship. And they were having problems staying on the path. At first, Ephraim had a hand on Edward, holding him tight, but then he lost his grip. Edward vanished in an instant. Ephraim frantically searched the crowd, but it was hopeless, and he was overcome with sadness. He finally accepted the truth about his sister and his niece. They were most certainly dead, and Edward Ruloff had killed them. Ephraim Scutt quickly pulled out some money and hired several men to help him search the ship, but it was no use. He should have hauled Edward back to Ithaca immediately, but he needed to find Harriet and Priscilla, even if they were dead. Ephraim tried to think like his sneaky brother-in-law. Where would he go next? The steamer would be making several stops. He traveled to Pennsylvania, where another Scut brother lived. But he wasn't there. Ephraim hired a livery team and rushed to Cleveland, Ohio, where he hoped to find his brother-in-law. Edward had once bragged that he was offered a prestigious job there. He actually beat the ship there. Ephraim tried to stay calm as he stood on the wharf, watching two steamers pull in. He asked if one of the boats carried German immigrants. Yes, was the answer, the second boat. Ephraim was hopeful. He guessed that Edward would be there because he could blend in easily by feigning a German accent. Ephraim found a law enforcement officer and showed him the warrant. They searched both boats and spoke to the immigrants crammed into the different rooms. Then Ephraim looked inside an old, cheap dining saloon on the boat and pointed. He found the illustrious academic hiding there eating lunch. Is your name Ruloff? the officer asked. No, sir, was his meek reply. Yes, it is, snapped Ephraim. The officer arrested Edward, and Ephraim locked him into a strong room inside a steamboat on Lake Erie heading back to New York. It had taken several days, but the Scuts had finally caught him. Kathy Chadwick, Ephraim's great-great-niece, says she has always been amazed by that bit of family history. It always surprises me that at that time, how could they trace somebody to Ohio? Yeah. It was out of love and desperation, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly commitment. They obviously were a very tight-knit family, and it was devastating to lose any of them.
As the steamer chugged toward New York, Ephraim Scott eyed Edward. He refused to say anything other than insisting that Harriet and Priscilla were still alive. Edward told Ephraim through the door that he would tell him everything. Just let me out. Ephraim scoffed and then agreed. They silently sat on the deck together, looking across Lake Erie as the steamer chugged along. Ephraim suddenly turned and decided to appeal to his brother-in-law one last time. You came into our family in poverty and distress, said Ephraim. You were kindly, very kindly received. I was the last one to believe you guilty of murder. I am now entirely satisfied that you are guilty. What can you say for yourself? Edward was quiet. It was over and he knew it. And then he made his brother-in-law an offer. He would jump overboard to his death. Ephraim smirked. He knew what Edward was capable of. Fine, he replied snidely but you're too much of a coward. Edward stayed silent. Ephraim quickly walked him back to the room. The lock on the door turned. By this time, everyone on board knew that the ship was carrying a murderer. The captain scolded Ephraim in front of everyone on the steamer. That damned wretch has murdered your sister. My friend, if this was my case, I would hang him to the yard arm till he is dead. Some passengers agreed and began searching for a rope. Others wanted to throw Edward into the water, but Ephraim Scott stopped them. He wanted Edward to die for killing four members of his family. He wanted it more than any of them, but vigilante justice wasn't enough. Ephraim really wanted to keep his brother-in-law alive for the trial. He actually believed in American law. They were a close-knit family, and they were determined, and, you know, they didn't take him out and hang him, or they didn't shoot him, but they went through the legal system. Ephraim wanted Edward Ruloff punished quickly, and so he saved his brother-in-law from being killed aboard that steamship. It was yet another decision he would regret for the rest of his life. Four months after Ephraim Scott captured his brother-in-law in in Ohio, Edward Ruloff appeared in court in Ithaca, New York. The prosecutor gave them two choices. They could convict him of murdering his wife or kidnapping her. A kidnapping conviction would mean a decade in prison, but a murder conviction would assure Edward a trip to the gallows. It's a hard choice. It was January 1846 when the trial began, And it was no surprise when Edward chose to represent himself. It was the narcissist in him. He cross-examined witnesses. He conversed with the judge politely. And thanks to the training he had received from a prominent attorney in Canada, he argued brilliantly. Edward was passionate about his innocence. He insisted to jurors that his wife and daughter were still alive. Historian Gerald Smith isn't surprised at all by Edward's courtroom performance. He just sees himself as a man who's been, you know, life has treated him unjustly. He should be treated better. I'm a brilliant man, and these oafs are all around me. And Edward was wise not to testify. He hoped the lack of evidence would give the jury reasonable doubt. The prosecutor's case had some problems. There was no body, no physical evidence, and really no circumstantial evidence. 
just a lot of suspicion from a worried family and intense disgust. All of the scuts were in court throughout the trial while witnesses described Edward's abusive behavior and violent jealousy. The jurors discussed the evidence for days. And then they finally convicted Edward of kidnapping his wife, not murdering her. The Scuts were stunned. And apparently so was the judge, because he quietly asked each juror about the verdict. They all said they were sure that Edward was a killer, but the judge asked, how then could you find him guilty of abduction? Well, we did not know if we should ever get a chance at him again, replied one juror, and we were bound to convict him of something. They sensed he was evil, but there just wasn't enough evidence for murder. Gossip spread across Tompkins County in the aftermath of the trial, and all of the lies terrified the Scuts. There were rumors that the bodies were actually sold to a nearby medical college for anatomy classes. There were reports that a woman and a child matching their descriptions were brought there. A newspaper in Vermont reported that recent flooding in Ithaca had exhumed a trunk from Cayuga Lake. When it was opened, officials discovered the mangled bodies of what looked like a woman and child. But neighbors said that Edward had returned to his home with his trunk. Another false lead. The attorney who advised Edward during his kidnapping trial started his own rumor. He claimed that Edward told him that he had cut the throats of both his wife and daughter. He wrapped the bodies with wire so they could never be unfastened. He attached a heavy iron mortar to Harriet and a flat iron to Priscilla. That story seemed to actually have more merit than most. But still, Cutting a victim's throat would create quite a lot of blood, probably more than a head wound, and there was little evidence of a cleanup in the house. And there is a rumor about little Priscilla that still persists. Edward refused to talk about her fate, even after he was vague about her death. Years later, journalist Hamilton Freeman gently pressed him further, but Edward quickly snapped. That is no one's business. She is living and is well enough off. Ham asked for some more details, Who has her then? Edward replied, You must think I'm a damn fool, Ham, to ask me such questions. Do you suppose that I would expose anything about her? I would die first. I had plenty of time to take care of her, and I did it well. Newspapers reported that Priscilla had been spirited off, alive, to Edward's younger brother's house, his closest friend. Ruloff Rulofsen was now a wealthy timber merchant in Pennsylvania, and he was raising his own large family. Priscilla was supposedly an adopted daughter. Local reporter David Wren hopes that was actually what happened. I would love to know if his daughter survived and actually went to Pennsylvania and was reared by a family there. That would be very heartwarming to me if I knew that he had not murdered his own daughter. Heartwarming in the sense that she had a life. Um... And so I would love to know the the answer to that. But Craig Scott and I don't think that's what happened. Yeah, I don't know about that. No one saw anyone come and pick her up. Nobody heard anything. Right. Yeah. You know, baby would have been crying on the way and would have been not an easy task. I agree. Yeah, that's a good point, too. People saw him leave and then return with the trunk, but I just, nobody witnessed anything. 
Ham tried to ask Edward another question about Priscilla, but he snapped again. Ham backed away. The journalist was conflicted. Was he telling the truth? He might have been enamored with Edward, but he could occasionally be realistic about the killer. Ham wrote, Ruloff was a very proud man, and his pride, his personal self-respect, would never allow him to acknowledge that he murdered a sweet little infant. Sadly, Priscilla Ruloff never appeared again, dead or alive. After Edward was convicted of kidnapping Harriet, he became a vicious monster in the national media. The mystery of his wife and daughter's disappearance enthralled newspaper reporters across the country. The Milwaukee Daily Sentinel described him vividly. He has a large, broad forehead, eyes remarkably far apart, is an educated man, converses fluently, is in the habit of writing shorthand, is very quick in his movements and quick-tempered. That's pretty detailed. In the 19th century, alienists began documenting that some of their patients who appeared outwardly normal had what they called a moral depravity or moral insanity. They seemed to possess no sense of ethics or empathy. Psychopathy falls under a category of mental health disorders called antisocial personality disorder. But that condition wouldn't be recognized for more than a century, and the word psychopath would not be used until the turn of the century. Instead, Edward Ruloff was presented to America as a lunatic without a conscience or remorse. People felt the explanation for his murderous behavior must lie in his nature, his race, his blood, even the diameter of his face. And Ham had no better answers. He called Edward's violent nature the demon within him. Modern psychiatrists have a little less difficult time pinpointing Edward Ruloff. And devils or demons are not on the assessment exam. Psychopathy is now diagnosed with a standard checklist that scores various traits on a scale. Dr. Nigel Blackwood teaches forensic psychiatry at King's College London. He spent his career observing psychopaths and their characteristics. Tell me about the traits that make this guy a psychopath. The density of the offending, the different types of offenses, the seeming lack of remorse, the lack of empathy, the narcissistic traits, uh, the arrogance, the deceptive interpersonal behaviors. Dr. Blackwood and his team studied the MRI brain scans of normal people, sociopaths, and psychopaths, and how they're different. He's hoping his discovery can be used to find better ways to treat violent psychopaths. He figured out that they don't respond to punishment the way most people do. Prison might keep them off the streets, but it doesn't seem to reform them. Psychopaths can be very successful and nonviolent. They just likely won't be like everybody else. But one key might be found in their brains, the way they're physically different from other people. Dr. Blackwood and his team conducted MRI scans of the brains of 12 violent criminals, men convicted of crimes like murder and rape. They compared those scans to 38 people without psychopathy. The study found that the psychopaths have reduced gray matter volume in the anterior rostral prefrontal cortex and the temporal poles. Dr. Blackwood says those areas both help process two important things in healthy people, remorse and social stigma. So classically, the psychopath will struggle to have a sense of remorse or a sense of embarrassment about some of the things that they've done in the past. 
Uh, they are more likely to use violence in an instrumental way to get what they want. Dr. Blackwood says that remorse and embarrassment help stop most people from killing, but not psychopaths. He says his study proves that psychopaths have structurally different brains from everyone else. Blackwood hopes that new medications might help, but there's still so much more to discover. And the consensus among experts today is that Edward Ruloff was a psychopath. And that's significant because psychopaths make up only about 1% of the general population. So they're rare, but not in prison. As many as 25% of incarcerated male offenders are psychopaths. William Winslade is a nationally known psychotherapist who has testified in numerous criminal cases. He says Edward Ruloff was the classic example of a psychopath. He had no empathy for the people that he killed. He was delusional about his intelligence. Because he was smart, he could do whatever he wanted. Winslade believes that only prison or death would stop someone like Edward from killing again. He just could never be cured, even today. Why are we so scared of the word psychopath? Because they're dangerous. And psychopaths are people that'll do things that nobody else would do. Uh, and they do it out of some you know, delusional, grandiose sense of uh, autonomy that they can do anything. So if Edward Ruloff was a psychopath, could prison really change him? Might he be one of those rare people with psychopathy who could be reformed? It would take a decade to find out. In 1846, a judge sentenced him to 10 years in Auburn State Prison, the maximum punishment allowed for kidnapping. The entire Scutt family was outraged. He should have been hanged by his neck, they screamed in court. I think they felt totally unsatisfied because they didn't get him for the murders. He destroyed their view of their quiet little city and brought some level of violence to it that they'd never really seen. And I think they just, yeah, you know, they demanded quick and just retribution. Ephraim Scott was silent during the sentencing and remorseful. He should have let Edward Ruloff jump overboard the steamer before they reached Ithaca that day. He wished the other passengers had overpowered him, broken down that door, and wrapped a rope around his brother-in-law's neck. Ephraim refused to make that mistake again. The law had failed him and his family. The Scuts raised a lynch mob, hoping to break into the Ithaca jail before his transfer to prison. They would hang Edward themselves to save other families from heartache. They had no doubts that he would kill again. They sawed down a large tree to build a battering ram to knock that door down. It was so heavy that it took 20 men just to pick the thing up. They were too late. The sheriff had already taken Edward away to protect him. He had been saved by the law once again. Edward Ruloff became the newest inmate at the Auburn State Prison, 40 miles north of Ithaca. Edward's new home was this imposing building designed to resemble a medieval English castle. 
Its grim exterior would inspire fear in those who passed by it and terror in those who were confined in it. Gerald Smith says that Auburn was a terrible place to do time. That's hard time. That's like maximum security type penitentiary. First of all, it's dark. It's dank. It's dreary. It's something out of a Dickens novel. It's, It's manual labor. It's hard labor. The prison was a dreadful home for most inmates. And yet Edward seemed to thrive as once again he was able to reinvent himself. He became a proficient carpet designer, part of his work program inside the prison. And he was even hired by a contractor. In fact, Edward's designs were worth about $5,000 a year. And he saved everything he earned. He also received money in the mail from his younger brother, William, who was now a famous photographer in San Francisco. William refused to visit, but he would always be grateful for Edward's guidance when they were younger. Edward ordered dozens of books for his cell, some from sources overseas. And of course, even in prison, he remained haughty, not humble. You know, he's, he's very aloof to most people. I dare say, I bet he didn't have much interaction with the jailers as well. Alone in his cell, Edward began to read about philosophers, especially Plato. He perfected Greek and learned Sanskrit, which is quite a complicated language. And he wrote, especially on a theory he developed about language. He believed he had discovered how it started and why it developed the way it did. He claimed he had detected a pattern that would allow him to teach all languages to the rubes in Tompkins County, or really anywhere else. Cornell University linguistics professor Michael Weiss explains the theory. A lot of education in the 19th century was based upon the study of Greek and Latin, and that's actually a rather challenging thing to master. Uh, So, yeah, if there was a kind of uh, magical key to understanding the relationship between sound and meaning in these languages, then that would have made a lot of people's lives a lot easier in that period. Edward's theory was still in its early stages as he toiled by candlelight on his manuscript inside his cell. He described his discovery almost like someone who would recount a religious experience, a moment of clarity that blotted out all of the horrible things he had done. He told Ham, No other man lived with a higher or nobler ambition than I. Both linguistics and his discovery would become his obsession. As far as he was concerned, nothing was going to stop him from making history. His manuscript would change his destiny, alter the course of his life. And it would also be his downfall. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In prison, Edward made an unusual pen pal, a Wright Seminary student named Julius Hawley Seeley. C. 
Seeley would eventually become an author, a congressman, and the president of Amherst College. The pair exchanged numerous letters, each delving deeper into Edwards' evolving theory about where languages come from. Michael Wise has read Edwards' letters to Seeley, now housed at Cornell University. He says they give you real insight into the way Edwards' mind worked. It's pretty clear that Ruloff was an extraordinarily able person. He recited all sorts of passages from Greek at heart and was able to discuss them. So he, he clearly did know, know a lot. Weiss says that Edward had many theories, some more sound than others. He speculated about the language of Homer, the Greek poet who penned the Iliad and the Odyssey. And Edward had an unusually insightful theory for a 19th century linguist. I can actually quote the line here. Uh, he said, he was the center of a system which was perfected under that name. I believe with others that no one man was the author of all that is ascribed to Homer. He was saying that the Homeric language is not the work of a singular individual. And this is actually something which we definitely know is true today. So that was a kind of unusually key insight on his part. Weiss says that while he's impressed with certain ideas in the letters, he's actually alarmed by others. Edward just couldn't hide his violent nature, even on paper. When Seeley criticized his theories, the imprisoned academic did not react well. He's talking about his discoveries and whether people will appreciate them. This is when he's in jail. I think I perceive that you regard my discovery in language as of trifling or doubtful importance. And it may now be that you will never live to see reasons for correcting this impression. I thought this was uh, kind of threatening. Weiss says that the tone of Edward's letters reflected his personality. Volatile. He's very hostile to people who don't appreciate his own uh, genius. Uh, he's a scary, scary person as you come to know him from his writings. Aside from languages, Edward honed other skills in prison. He became fascinated by the emerging science of phrenology. This was the detailed study of the size and shape of a person's skull. It's all bunk. There's no science to it at all. But phrenology was big business in the 19th century. Just placing your hands on a man's skull and feeling the bumps would reveal his character traits and intellectual capacity. Whether he was a saint or a sinner, a devout minister or a killer, David Price is an expert in phrenology at the University of Edinburgh. He rattled off a variety of predictions about a skull inside his office in Scotland. You could draw lines on the skull. You'd split it into 30, 40 regions. Uh, and you would say, this region here is associated with this property of your personality. So if it's large, it means you have a lot of that in your personality. So you can see how phrenology would be worrisome for some people. You might be labeled a deviant just because of the bumps on your head. It was kind of like fortune-telling, a parlor trick. The instinct to love um, was apparently situated in the brain beneath the back of your skull, uh, back here at the top of the neck. Other, you know, violoprogressiveness, I mean, these are words that, you know, I don't even know if they're in the dictionary, honestly. To, the instinct to take care of your offspring. Phrenology leaned on the 19th century belief that a man's appearance mirrored his integrity. A wicked man would certainly look like the devil, not a genteel academic, right? Edward Ruloff had other phrenologists examine his skull. He was remarkably intelligent, of course. According to those experts, he was certainly a moral man, except they had examined him before he committed all of those murders. I'm sure their assessments would have changed after his trial. 
Edward's time in Auburn illustrated the contradictory nature of his personality, his Jekyll and Hyde behavior. He was a model inmate with newly gained skills and a deep knowledge of languages. And his theory about the pattern of languages had the potential to change people's lives for the better. Gerald Smith says that prison might have actually been a blessing. It's life in your cell by yourself to come up with these ideas uh, or his theories of language and human existence. And I think the Auburn prison was probably good for him. And in fact, they kept him out of society. Despite the horrid conditions, Edward stayed out of trouble. And in 1856, he prepared for his release. He was optimistic about his future as he added more details to his manuscript. After his freedom from prison, things might just change for Edward. Journalist David Wren told me that there was reason to be hopeful about his future if he was willing to change. And that's a big if. And we do love a good redemption story. In my past as a journalist, I've interviewed a lot of inmates, particularly on the Texas death row. And one thing that they all have in common is that they really can't seem to get out of their own way. And I see Ruloff as the same sort of person. William Winslade says that Edward Ruloff had 10 years to think about his crimes. Maybe he could be rehabilitated. I think people that have committed serious crimes could have a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of behavior. So some people that do bad things do something to redeem themselves. Many people don't. Edward Ruloff would soon leave prison after a decade of being a respected and productive inmate. He was in a position to turn his life around, finally. Years later, Hamilton Freeman would listen as Edward wept over his feelings of hope and his humility. Ham thought, who could contemplate this wretched picture and not drop a tear, or at least heave a sigh of pity for a poor, frail human nature? He felt sorry for him. His life was like one long tragedy. Ham wrote, A blow struck in a moment of ungovernable passion blasted forever all there was of early promise of Edward H. Ruloff. It deprived him of his first and only love and branded him as a monster in the sight of God and man. In 1871, Edward studied Hamilton. He was drawing the journalist closer. He had honed his skills in manipulation over the past three decades. Edward could tell that Ham was feeling sympathy for him, the only one in the world who did at this point. But Edward Ruloff was duplicitous, cunning, and he was fixated. Edward had convinced Ham that he was a victim of circumstance. None of this was his fault. Their friendship was deepening, and the killer was clearly the one in control. And there was still so much of his story to share. Back then, the other residents of Tompkins County hadn't forgiven or forgotten Edward Ruloff. Over the previous 10 years, the Scuts' hostility had hardened into hatred. In 1856, they demanded to see Edward hanged for four murders. They demanded justice, and they were infuriated that the killer would soon walk free. So it shows what kind of character they had as people, you know, as a family. And I think they showed a lot of strength and character through the whole thing. Harriet's brothers threatened the sheriff that if the courts wouldn't execute Edward Ruloff, then they would. 
He killed two of our own, especially a little baby, you know? Yeah, he got convicted, but he didn't really serve his time. After his release, Edward planned to move to New York City and away from the Scuts forever. He vowed to himself that he would control his rage better from now on, that he would never kill again. Of course, if that were true, we wouldn't have three episodes left. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked... No empathy, no... He just... He, he would do anything. He wanted to destroy that family. Yeah. He broke their innocence. He brought evil. This is the devil incarnate has just struck. You know, it's almost a lynch mob mentality. People that have no self-restraint are dangerous. He was pretty crazy. If you love historical true crime, be sure to order my book, American Sherlock. It's about a real-life Sherlock Holmes who solved some of the most gruesome murders in the 1920s. This has been an Exactly Right and Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. So please listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.